Hi everyone. This episode, we spoke to journalist and author Lucy Jones about her book, Losing Eden, which details why our minds need the world. Our conversation touched upon how nature, along with more traditional treatments, was important for her recovery from addiction and other mental health issues, and the role of our relationship to the natural world in mental health, as well as much, much more. If you enjoy the episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi Lucy, how are you? Hi, I am, I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm very well, thanks. How, so to start with, we always ask about what your kind of relationship looks like with mental health. Sure. So, um, personally, I've had, um, kind of struggles with mental health, I guess, since my, my mid to late teens, spells of depression, um, and anxiety and, quite a major episode in my mid-twenties of addiction um, related to depression and anxiety and then I've also had postnatal depression um, so yeah it, it's been an up and down journey personally for me at the moment I feel good um, I, I use a variety of things when I'm not well medication psychotherapy and nature, which I'm guessing we'll go on to talk about. Um, professionally, I have been um, working and writing on my book, Losing Eden, Why Our Minds Need the Wild, um, which is about the relationship between the natural world and mental health. So over the last kind of seven, eight years or so, I've been um, reading and researching in the area of um mental health and well-being and the more kind of severe mental illnesses uh, in relation to both nature-based interventions and connecting with nature but also um, in uh, in the context of our kind of estrangement and disconnection from the living world in our kind of hyper-industrialized societies. So yeah pretty mental health figures in a pretty big way in both my personal and professional life. Yeah, so you said you said both just then and in your book that there are kind of four elements to your recovery, but that that nature played a major role. So I was just wondering how those kind of how those four kind of things interacted. Sure. So um so this this is um yeah, so I guess when I the kind of period of um mental ill health that my book starts with, um uh yeah was a I, I guess it was a kind of um a mental breakdown in a way and uh i i managed to access um kind of gp support uh and medication quite quite quickly and easily that seemed to be the kind of first port of call um and then the next was psychotherapy um which i was working at the telegraph at the time and was so lucky to have private health insurance um and so I managed to have private psychotherapy um which I will always be eternally grateful for um and then the third aspect was um when I realized that my relationship with um drugs and alcohol was was really out of control I found um kind of recovery groups and meetings so so the support of other 
other addicts and, and, and also friends and family was really crucial. But then the, 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 the tool, the element which really took me by surprise and kind of knocked me off my feet to the point um, that I wanted to write a book about it uh, was, was walking in, in the Walthamstow marshes in, in London. So connecting with nature um, for the first time really since childhood. Um, and that came about because newly sober, I had a lot of time on my hands um, because I've been drinking pretty heavily since early adolescence. Um, I found that I was experiencing very extreme highs and lows of emotion that I had almost never experienced really as an adult because I'd always drunk on them or planned to drink on them. Um, so it was a really kind of mentally and emotionally tumultuous time when I was trying to stay sober a day at a time. Um, I started running because, you know, I knew already that that could help me with endorphins. Um, but then I was really drawn to this beautiful um, natural space uh, in East London. And I found that um, the trees, the birds, the flowers, the smells, the changing seasons, um, became like almost like another drug um it kind of soothed my mind and my anger and my anxiety and all the stuff that was coming up uh in a way that you know alcohol had done in the past but of course it was preferable because it didn't leave me with a hangover um and uh i hadn't i you know i wasn't prescribed it and, and that's definitely something doctors are doing more but you know i, I obviously had this kind of intuitive sense that being outside could be good so that became a kind of like a being born again almost like a oh my gosh there's so much out there and you know connecting with nature isn't just you know a nice thing it actually feels like a really important therapy for me right now so that is was the trigger for losing Eden and for me to want to um drill down into the mechanism by which that contact with the with the living world seems to affect mental health and so i wanted to to find out what was happening to my brain what was happening to my nervous system why was it so effective and if it's so effective or you know if people find it so therapeutic then why are we not doing more to protect it and to connect people to it yeah so was it something that you you kind of stumbled upon not not knowing that it could or would be beneficial or was it something that you'd heard might be beneficial and that drove you towards it um no it was more stumbling so I guess it started with running because you know I did know that that could boost my mood but then I would always want to run to this marsh and I would end up walking for a lot of the run because I wanted to look at the coots and the moorhens or the cormorants or you know the heron also and so on and and then it kind of turned into more of like a nature walk run so yeah no one really um recommended it to me it felt almost like a kind of secret romantic relationship in some ways because I'd you know just go there every day I was working as a freelance writer at home at the time and you know it it felt like a really important thing that I needed to do every day to be on my own but with with other species as it were um but yeah I guess I do have like my mum lives in the middle of nowhere in Scotland uh and my dad you know really encouraged walking and so on when I was a kid 
so I guess I, you know, I always had a sense that the sea could be healing or that there was something good out there. But I think, you know, having lived in London, at that point I'd lived in London for like 10 years and I was so disconnected from, from nature that it did feel really like this is a really different thing to do for me. Yeah, I think that's that's quite a common thread of, of kind of young people these days is that I know it especially happened with me that, you know, I was super outdoorsy as a kid. I, you know, I was, I was part of scouts. I lived in a quite a rural area. I did walking and climbing and things. Mm. And then as I kind of went to university, I kind of lost that. And then I think a lot of young people moved to London and lose that connection with nature. And I was, I was lucky enough to go to, uh, to university in Durham, which has some of the most beautiful beaches and kind of settings in the UK, but mm. I kind of had no appreciation of that at the time. So do you think, do you think that is an issue that young people are becoming more, um, I suppose, detached from, from the natural world? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, the, the disconnection that you talk about, which happens in kind of adolescence and around uni or so, um, is common and it's borne out in the kind of evidence of nature connection. Kids are, are into it and then suddenly at some point in teenage years, they're less into it and then often they will come back later. Um, and I guess, I mean, a lot of that kind of makes sense that adolescence is a time of identity creation and experimenting. But I think that also, it also speaks to this kind of strange cultural idea that nature isn't very cool that we have in our kind of society that it's a bit kind of cringe or earnest or you know tree huggers are kind of people will roll their eyes and so on you know and like I certainly felt that when I was a teenager like I I wanted to be in the pub or club or whatever I would be embarrassed to be like taking my microscope out as I love to do now um but certainly the so so I was really interested in um, researching kind of children and uh, and nature um, for losing Eden. And um, I mean, it's quite astounding. Like, I think children spend 12,000 hours in a classroom for their education. That was a figure that um, I was told by an eco-psychologist. And, um, you know, as soon as kids kind of get into primary school age they're enclosed in, in these classrooms and of course they have to learn but um I, you know we we do disconnect our kids from from the natural world gradually um because as a society we're so estranged and that's a real that's a real problem and a real shame for so many reasons from the mental health benefits to to physical health to um you know in improved learning confidence risk-taking and so on um and one thing that uh research suggests is that if a kid is into nature it's exposed to nature as a child um it's it's much more likely that they will go on to have a relationship in adulthood so they might become not very interested as as a teenager but then later on they will so it's really important to give all children from all backgrounds um the access to high quality green space uh and you know how the beauties and joys of, of the living world yeah um, and i think we could do much better at that as a society yeah something that really interested me in the book was was reading about the forest schools i think they're called and they, that struck struck me as being something quite progressive and, and interesting but 
reading the news and seeing that you know when kids do go back to school um i think they've done it in denmark primary school kids have gone back to school but all the teaching is based where possible outside so can you see a kind of a way that what's going on at the moment um can actually help kind of reinforce our relationship with nature and maybe make us take a look at uh, the curriculums of schools and see where we can where we can put more outdoors time I suppose but also more learning about nature yeah I think that's a, a really great um, question and, and a kind of astute uh, reading of what's happening um, I think yeah it, it, it provides an opportunity for kind of looking at curriculums and how we educate and, and teach children um, and look at possibilities to kind of evolve and, and look to our, for example, Scandin- Scandinavian neighbours um, who whose children reap so many rewards from outdoor learning and kind of forest school happening constantly. Um, at the moment, there is a growing, a growing movement of forest school, which is really exciting and outdoor nurseries. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, it's difficult for teachers because you know so they have so much to do and you know schools are really um you know class sizes are so big and the the barriers to kind of thinking oh I'm not trained in outdoor learning or so on but maybe this kind of tragic situation will um kind of push 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 teachers kind of off the diving board as it were and so you know learning outside actually isn't isn't that difficult um my daughter goes to a mostly outdoor nursery and it's going to be wholly outdoor now. Um, and I mean, she's three, so it's early years, but, but I, I'm really happy about that because, you know, from, from researching losing Eden, like the evidence for outdoor learning on personal social development, confidence, um, and mental health and wellbeing is so strong uh, it just feels like if that could be built in to our education system, so many children would benefit from it because, um, you know, for many, it's through school that they are exposed to the natural world. Mm. Um, and and also teachers might benefit, might benefit as well. Yeah, so that, that's something else I, I wanted to touch upon is that, you know, at the moment when we we're all locked in our houses and we have or until the last week we've had very limited time to go outside for some people i suppose who live in uh, more built-up areas going to school might or walking to school or being at school might actually be their only interaction with with the natural world and and something that you were writing about was the kind of need to publicize that outdoor space is kind of for everyone and i suppose the coronavirus has kind of highlighted that in that you know some people find have found lockdown okay because you know they've got a beautiful big garden but if you're if you're kind of trapped in um, in a tower block with no garden and not allowed outside it can be much more difficult Mm. absolutely it's really exposed the inequality of access to the natural world um you know in such a kind of stark way the um you know the experience of of being in lockdown with a garden to being in a high rise with no outdoor space um is just massive and you know to me it just proves the fact that um 
having some outdoor space and having or having access to high quality green space parks and so on should be just an essential uh human right in how we build our build our societies um and you know the more the more research is is published in this area um there's been a huge kind of mushrooming of of quantitative evidence for nature contact and human mental and physical health over the last 20 or so years which is kind of forms the backbone of of losing eden my book um but it seems like we still aren't quite grasping that in the way we build um our cities and and kind of live um so what i'm really hoping is that both with this kind of showing up of inequality but also with this growing growing field of evidence um we'll see that it you know it's just really unfair for people to live without contact with nature one of the most um interesting um well multiple studies really was of a couple of massive um projects in chicago called the robert taylor homes which became the site of um some research by environmental scientists in the 90s and they found that um well so there was one one block which had absolutely no trees or nature at all so the people who lived there never saw nature and then there was another block which had a few trees scattered around um and they found in their studies that those who lived in the um apartments with views onto trees um had much lower stress levels higher uh, well-being um fewer social issues you know, so that just shows even the presence of a few sh trees can have um, a measurable effect on on human life. Um, I I guess before I wrote Losing Eden, I might have thought that um, you know act nature and so on is a specific hobby. Like some people are into it. Um, it's quite privileged and elitist in a way, maybe. Um, like I like. I like it my other friends don't like it that's fine but in fact what I came to believe through through reading um all the science and research was that even background nature where you live is really important so nature connection and a deeper relationship with nature does equate to higher mental health benefits but just living on a street with tree-lined a tree-lined street or having um a park with higher biodiversity that you can walk through to get to the shop um, that has measurable effects on, on human individual health and population health um, so yeah I, I think it's like a, a pretty pretty big deal <laughs> yeah um, and, and so you, you kind of started to talk about it a little bit there were you I suppose I don't know if skeptical is the right word but were you I'll use it were you skeptical about the benefits of things like ecotherapy of kind of forest bathing or even you know just lining lining roads with trees were you, were you skeptical about how how powerful that could be for people's mental health before you started writing yeah i was i was quite skeptical um i guess you know being a mostly a science journalist at that time um you know, I was used to writing articles and, and reports and so on, you know, which were kind of scientifically rigorous. And that was 
that was the kind of baseline that I wanted for Losing Eden was that everything that I covered or included would be kind of rigorous and empirical and good science. Um, and I was sceptical because, you know, whereas I'd had this kind of nature epiphany, many people I knew didn't go to, to the woods for their relaxation on a weekend. You know, they had lots of different ways of soothing themselves and, um, you know, getting out of their heads. Um, and also, you know, I was aware of this idea of the nature cure and, um, you know, how complex it is and, and how dangerous it is to kind of say to someone, go for a walk and you'll feel better or, um, you know, propping up nature connection as a kind of, as a cure-all uh, when it when it's clearly yeah. not so yeah there were lots of there were lots of kind of um hesitations i had and and skeptical skepticisms i had um i also i think i went into it at the beginning thinking maybe you know con contact with nature or nature-based interventions more formally which formally which are um uh, you know gps are starting to prescribe things like woodland therapy horticultural therapy for people with mental illness um i may have thought yeah maybe this would be work work for kind of depression and anxiety but could it touch the sides with the more severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia or psychosis um and uh one of the trips that i took was to a um medium secure unit um and i sat down with probably like the two most unwell people I've ever met um, in the garden there who are they're both um, kind of patients but also they're in the criminal justice system yeah. um, and I talked to them about how gardening uh, helps them and the horticultural therapists there as well who've been working there for a long time and and you know it became pretty clear to me that contact with nature isn't just a kind of uh like elite narrow thing actually it's a really big deal and um you know it has kind of wide ranging iterations which can help different people at different times um so yeah i think whereas i i, I probably started as a skeptic and, and probably the first drafts i turned in were maybe a bit more skeptical um or hedging my bets a little bit the, the the accumulation of the evidence uh, as it kind of built up, I kind of realised, you know, this I'm sold, um, and I, you know, I I'm totally sold on this. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. Has the reaction to it been been what you expected? As in, has it been um, are people coming at it from the same point of view that you did and, and been turned around or are there people that kind of just stick their head in the sands and say, you know, this is just kind of um, green kind of eco stuff that, that, that can't have a benefit. Mm. Um, yeah. It's been, I didn't really have any expectations to be honest. I think that's kind of generally a good lesson in life. Um, I, I've been surprised and really heartened by people writing to me and saying, um, I've been reading your book and it's kind of inspired me to go out straight away um, and to kind of be outside and I've already felt the benefits. Um, 
I didn't expect it to have that kind of tangible effect maybe on people. That's been really cool. There was a review that was really interesting to me, um, which talked, which kind of focused on it being a book about eco dread. Um, and I think it said something like, um, I was over emphasizing the, the relation, our negative relationship with the natural world. Uh, and I found that, I found that really interesting. I think that it's maybe, um, for certain people maybe a bit of a threaten a threat a threatening idea that our relationship with nature is dysfunctional um i mean that's definitely the kind of perspective that i'm coming from that you know we're in a kind of fossil fuel addicted society which is you know unconsciously um destroying the natural world um and you know that that's not something which we want to do and that you know, it'd be better if we could think of a different way of living. Um, but yeah, I guess um, I didn't, I don't know. I found that interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, I didn't get that impression that it was kind of eco-dread at all. I think it, I think it's, it's really interesting to bring up, um, and it's not something that I'd, studying within climate change, it's not something that I'd actually particularly thought of was the the negative impacts that that climate change could have on people's mental health and something I found really interesting was the when you wrote about the studies that looked at um, Inuit populations in Greenland and and how um, and how the, the the melting ice there is, is impacting you know it's kind of pervasive over their whole way of life so naturally it's going to have an impact on their mental health mm. yeah that that kind of field is is really quite new of course because the effects are only being kind of measured and so on so I feel like I kind of scratched the surface of that but it felt like an important really important um area to bring in because um you know lots of people will be suffering the effects of being on the front line of climate change um and the effect of that on their mental health um yeah, did, I mean, was it when you picked up the book? Was it what you expected, or did it kind of surprise you in any way? I was surprised that it talked. I didn't really think it was going to talk about climate change, which kind of interested me because I kind of thought it'd be much more about um, what you can do, kind of immediately to to help your mental health and why it helped other people. Which I suppose the kind of first first part of the book was. Um, but the aspects around climate change I found really fascinating and I, f I find it really interesting that that there has been a little bit of a pushback against people um, I suppose it, it, it's, it's kind of that it threatens the way that they're living their lives that saying stuff like um, you know saying that you know, we do need a change and that actually the way we treat our natural world is, is, is harming people's mental health. It kind of threatens the way people are living and kind of makes them push back on it harder because it feels like an attack on them, but it's more, but that's not really what it's trying to do at all. Yeah. Yeah. What area, what area of climate change are you studying in? So my, um, my background was geography and then climate change. And now I look at uh how it's basically modeling snowfall 
in ski areas and how that um, how that is impacted under different global warming trends. Um, but a really interesting thing, one of the most interesting things I've found is that a lot of the the owners of the ski resorts are like unbelievably reticent to talk about climate change. They just want to put it right to the back of their minds wow. uh, or even say that it's not happening because as soon as they start to say that it is happening, mm. they're obviously admitting a vulnerability and exposing themselves to losing money. But then at the same time, they use climate change as a justification to um, to build kind of new adaptive infrastructure like snowmaking and stuff. Wow, how fascinating. So I suppose it's kind of a similar thing. It's a kind of threat to their existence. So they want to push back against it and they don't want to be seen as being culpable and they don't want to be seen as being affected by it. So it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I think that the human capacity for denial is unreal. Um, We're very good at it, aren't we? And, And kind of denial of climate change, which I guess, you know, we're all implicit in that in some way you know as much as I try and reduce my carbon footprint and live like a low carbon lifestyle I'm clearly in denial in some way yeah (laughs) Um, it's hard yeah that's really that's so interesting yeah um the defense mechanism as well yeah I mean the reason that I um climate change it's interesting that you pick up you didn't expect the climate change thing um reading Naomi Klein's this changes everything um was the reason why I moved from kind of more arts and culture journalism into environment and science journalism about like seven or so years ago um so that book and then learning more about climate change has all you know that that was always kind of big part of my thinking and the writing of 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 losing eden definitely i think about climate every day so yeah and i think it's it's probably not um it's not as much of a pervasive worry in my cohort but i think that kind of eco anxiety is like a real genuine thing amongst people who are a bit younger than me and something that can kind of quite easily be just dismissed as like I suppose teenagers and young people being a bit kind of eco and green but like did you find anything about about that kind of like the eco anxiety side of things um well that it's certainly on the increase um and that you know one of the one of the areas I found quite interesting was uh, like the linguistics around um, kind of climate change and biodiversity loss and mental health. Mm. So it kind of felt like when I started this, there were like eco anxiety wasn't really so much a, a mainstream term. Yeah, I'd not really heard of it until the last kind of, I suppose, couple of years, I think. Yeah, right. Um, and there's this guy called Glenn Albrecht who is a really great uh, environmental philosopher based in Australia um in a place which has seen like really really high temperatures and he has been coining new words to help people kind of make sense of the psychological effects of climate change um and one of his words is solastalgia have you heard that i've read it in the book but i don't think i can remember what it means Um, so it's it's a feeling of um 
kind of mourning and nostalgia for a place that is lost. So, um, like you were saying with the, when you mentioned the Inuits that I write about, um, the loss of kind of ecological place and how that affects kind of the mind and the spirit. Um, and you know, he, there's like a, a bunch of really great different words um, that he, that he's kind of coined, but there's also things like, you know, climate dread and, and eco alienation and um, species loss, uh, sorry, um, uh, species disconnection. Um, I don't know. So, so do you find that, so do you not have much eco anxiety in your kind of climate change academic world? I'm not sure I do particularly. I suppose it goes back to what we're saying. I find it quite easy to to disconnect from it, I suppose, to see it as a um a kind of long-term thing that might not affect me. And although I find it very interesting, I've only recently just started making kind of adjustments to to my lifestyle uh because of it. I think it's really interesting with the kind of I think especially with indigenous people. So like Aboriginal people in Australia, um, Inuit people in, in Greenland and Sami people in the kind of Arctic that, that their life, their, their kind of way of life is so dependent on, on climatic conditions. And, um, so for example, the Sami people, they're, you know, traditional reindeer herders and the ways that the routes that they take to, um, to herd their reindeers are being, destroyed because the ice isn't permanent there anymore so it's completely uprooting their kind of way of life and it just seems to be kind of almost completely inevitable that you know that's going to have some kind of psychological impact yeah absolutely um I mean that's going to be the kind of yeah the the extreme end of that I mean I suppose in a way in in the UK with the flooding um and the loss of houses and homes you know, we're seeing effects um, uh, and, you know, people losing their livelihoods. And, and I suppose that could, that could be kind of an early, early effects in our country. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of, to start wrapping things up, I suppose, how do you think the future of integrating nature into the kind of mental health treatment and kind of I suppose also kind of mental health prevention as well. How how does it look? Sure. Um, I think well in in losing Eden, I call for more of a kind of biopsychosocial model of healthcare, which lots of um, doctors have been calling for for a while. And that, um, you know, that's starting to 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 come, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is, and kind of bringing together the mental and the physical, not kind of separating them through different doors as it were um saying that i think that you know the way we design our towns cities villages um urban areas is really important um so building kind of housing estates that have uh the rest of nature incorporated into them making sure everybody has access and opportunities to connect um, in high quality green space, um, education, as we already kind of touched upon, uh, there's quite exciting plans for like a GCSE in natural history 
Um, the number of outdoor nurseries, as I say, is growing, forest school. Um, but I think, I mean, even things like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, it's no mow May. So I think quite a lot of councils are not mowing and obviously lots of like local government are busy uh, on COVID. So there does seem to be less mowing down of like road verges and so on. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably something that comes back to education around these issues, because I think a lot of people would think that, you know, keeping their lawn kind of prim and proper is doing a good thing for the for the environment and weeding is, you know, is weeding out stuff that shouldn't be there whereas actually you know letting your grass grow a bit and and letting those kind of smaller flowers and weeds grow is actually so key for for maintaining a balanced ecosystem exactly um and i think i mean it's kind of crazy isn't it when you think right we're in a biodiversity crisis we've lost however many pollinators insects bees uh and yet we have astroturf and our lawns are like a cultural symbol still and we mow our road verges which could be filled with wildflowers to provide food for pollinators it just i think education is really key for that but it is i think it is our estrangement and i, I totally count myself in that i mean i'm very plant blind and tree blind and it's only in recent years that i've really started taking notice of what's in my natural environment and what's around me. And, you know, that, that just seems to be the kind of um, the basic uh, perception that we're starting from, which is that, you know, it's all about the public interest and kind of control. And, and maybe it's also a kind of perception things in we kind of perceive that an overgrown verge on the side of a road is, you know, a sign of kind of laziness or, disorganized or we see it's kind of messy whereas if we let it grow out a bit and you know a few more wildflowers came into it 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 might look well it would look more beautiful and would be more beneficial than just having a a a mode patch of lawn definitely yeah I think a lot of it is a kind of aesthetic preference and like generation as well like I'm trying to um rewild a patch of lawn that land behind our houses with my neighbors which has been so such an an antidote to my UK anxiety um but one of my much much older neighbors in his 80s had kind of said oh we're gonna make it all nice and neat the garden and we were kind of thinking we just you know let nature go for it and put some wildflowers down or whatever but it was quite interesting to listen to him and think you know for him actually a wildflower meadow maybe doesn't equal something that's restorative it's it's really complex but then at the same time you know we don't have much time the trends are as they are that you know the decline in population and numbers is stark uh we've got to start we've got to make a change pretty soon just the last question how do you or i suppose how at the moment are you looking after your mental health what are the things that that really work for you i think i might know what going to say here (laughs) well I guess I mean I probably before you know writing and researching this book I I might have I might have thought um having a long walk every day was a bit indulgent or but now you know 
we go for a walk for a couple of hours me and my young family and it's it's just kind of sacred um I know that I'll feel so much better afterwards I also take meds at the moment and check in with people um sleep's really important to me uh <laughs> I've got a baby so it's kind of quite tricky but you know as much as I can but yeah and I think in the last few weeks it has been like really trying to notice the nature in my local environment so really trying to look and see I find that kind of akin to meditation and mindfulness I was saying that I used to be you know when I was a kid I used to be really outdoorsy one of my things was I used to be absolutely obsessed with butterflies which as you can imagine as like a 13 14 15 year old boy you try and hide that a bit but oh, no. actually like the last couple of weeks I've dug out all of my old butterfly books and I've been oh. trying to identify and tick off all the species that I can find so I've definitely found found that as a as a real kind of uh, soothing process yeah that's so nice it's worth it isn't it I mean it's just it's magic out there it really is and I also find like when you I suppose when you're forced to slow down like we have been at the moment and you just look at, like, I can see a tree out my window now. I, normally, I would just glance straight past it and you don't notice anything. But the longer you look at it, the more kind of small birds that you find, butterflies, the kind of, mm-hmm. it completely changes when you slow down and look at things. Yeah, there's a real difference between looking and seeing. I um I go to like this local urban cemetery quite a lot with my three-year-old and the other day she was like, let's go and get this bush, this tree. And I was like, nah, it looks, looks boring. And then she was like, come on, come on, come on. And we got closer and closer and we could hear like buzzing and smelling nectar and it was covered in pollinators. And I totally just like discounted it when actually it was this kind of abundant tree full of life. And, uh, you know, it just taught you, I think we just get, everything's accelerated in our modern lives, isn't it? Or we're, we're looking at our phones. We miss, we miss a lot. The stuff you can see outside is so much more interesting. Yeah. And now we know that, you know, spending time with that stuff, the rest of nature is, it's not just nice, you know, it's proven to have mental health and well-being benefits. So, you know, it's not just like a frill or an indulgence. It's actually, you know, uh, an important potential therapeutic pathway. Brilliant. Lucy, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hi everyone. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Just a quick note to say that although the things Lucy and I talked about we may find helpful, we are not trained medical professionals. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.